A lot of people think they know who Matt Horanic is, but very few people can actually pin him down. You look at Matt's Instagram and he seems to be everywhere at once. He's in LA hanging out at the Tower Bar, he's in Bordeaux grilling up steaks for friends, and he's in New York shooting photographs and working on his next book. The crazy part is, though, that he really is doing all of these things. He's racking up those frequent flyer miles and rarely taking a break from his jet-set media-making lifestyle. Now, I've known Matt for a long time. We actually used to be neighbors in Brooklyn. But it was a rare treat to sit down with him and our senior writer, James Stacy to set the record straight about who Matt is, where he comes from, and why he does what he does. Matt's a guy who can really tell a story, so I'm not going to spoil too much for you. I'll let him do the talking. Now, before we set foot in the recording booth, Matt, of course, whipped out a bottle of pre-mixed Negronis, complete with a fresh orange and a pocket knife for cutting that perfect garnish. A few handfuls of ice, some mismatched coffee mugs, and we were off to the races. If you hear ice clinking, well, now you know. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinky Radio. Good to see you, man. It's good to uh, sit down and have a, have a nice chat. Pleasure to be here, Negroni in hand. Uh, yeah, of course, Negroni in hand. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's, there's three, there's four people in studio, yeah. and there are four Negronis, which I'm very oh, yeah. proud of. To, to have supplied today. A global ambassador to the entire drink. Yes. Yeah. I, I hope I, someday I'll be financially recognized for that. But mm. it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, a, it's a position of stewardship, I think, mostly. Yeah, I, right now, I'm just happy to, you know, be consuming them. Mm. These are special Negronis, too. too, right? Yeah, so um, I thought, you know, since it's a, it's a Friday afternoon. Do people know this is a Friday afternoon? Yeah, I mean, they do now. They, they do, do now. So I thought, what a perfect opportunity to kind of pre-bottle some Negroni, so I didn't have to like travel all from Brooklyn to here with like all the fixing. So I this morning, this morning, before the coffee, I pre-bottled some Negroni mm-hmm. to one 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 proportions, as every good Negroni lover knows. And I used a very special vermouth, which is this Punta Mess uh, vermouth that is was bottled in the 1960s. I bought a case of this vintage vermouth. And the thing about vermouths and bitters and high spirit. Um, percentage alcohols, uh, they are, they survive all conditions. So normally if you find them, even open, they're usually still good. So I bought a case of this stuff and uh, it's spectacular. It's like other level because it was made in a time when people's palates were different, the tastes were different. So it's much more herbaceous and bitter. There's less sugar in it. Uh, and as it ages, it just becomes a richer version of itself. So I love Negronis. Like if I if I can get my hands and I have a few bottles and I actually have a shipment of coming from Italy this week of vintage Campari, which again the same flavor profiles, right? More bitter, less sweet, different recipe. Pre nineteen ninety was a different recipe. I make these Negroni Vecchio, which is the old Negroni. So this is Mezza Mezza Vecchio because it's only the vermouth that was old. Vintage, we'll call it vintage. Uh, but it be, it's a much richer flavored thing, if you've noticed. It's a pretty you know? damn good way to spend a Friday afternoon. It's really afternoon. delicious, yeah. and it's less sweet than I expected. It's less sweet. Which I appreciate quite a and, bit. And uh, there's some Monkey 47 gin in there. I like mm. I like classic London dries. I love the flavor, flavor profiles of this gin. And um, But I would say, in general, uh, you get the proportions right, you could pretty much, yeah. you know. You could use what use what's available, but that's what was available yeah. to me. 
So, so James already hit on the fact that like you're kind of the like global Negroni ambassador. You're also uh, Mr. Tweed Jacket. You're uh, the meat platter guy. You, you've got like a lot of a lot of stuff that I think people probably know you for mm. on on the internet on Instagram. Yeah. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about like who you actually are? Like where where do you come from? What do you consider yourself professionally? Listen, I I'm an upstate New York boy. I grew up in Binghamton, New York. I am I love upstate New York. I have one foot firmly always there, even uh, if that is symbolically. Uh, and, um, I moved to New York to, I moved to New York to be a photographer. And, uh. And when was that? That was 1990. Okay. I know some of y'all been born right about then, but, <laughs> uh, but I studied art history and, uh, photography in, I was school at RIT and then I studied in Europe. I studied abroad for a year in Salzburg. I actually went to school in the stables of the Schloss Leopoldskron where they filmed The Sound of Music which was oh. Oh, wow. kind of awesome. Yeah. Uh, and also, so that meant also the Sound of Music tour would come through my university <laughs> pretty much every single day. So they had to move the gazebo to some public park because it was really disruptive. But anyway, that was a great year of my life and that solidified my Europhile love, right? So then, um, but I would say, fast forward, you know, photography's always been a big part of what I guess my career was. Um, but I would say in the last 10 years, I've been wearing more hats, and that was a little bit of television, more editing in terms of content. Like, I was like, listen, when digital came around, I was like, listen, there's 10 guys behind me who are great at what they're doing with digital cameras. And you, I was just, you know, I'm a street hustler. Like, I knew how to get film processed and prints made and was able to build a portfolio. And normally that costs a lot of money to do that. So the career kind of fast forwarded because I was resourceful. But as digital came around, I was like, wow, maybe I'm better served as just like the ideas guy and working with all these kind of talented young photographers coming up, working with all these smart writers that I really love and contemporary photographers who I really enjoyed and were friends. And that's when I started doing more of the content stuff for Condé Nast Traveler, covering the watch market. That's how I met all you guys. And uh, I basically was just kind of following the stuff I loved. And and luckily, I fooled enough people to let me do that. And when you were a photographer, you worked with a number of, of really well-known photographers. Yeah. And you shot for a number of really well-known magazines. I mean, Wallpaper in the really early days. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about that? Who who kind of was a big impact on you early in your career? So when I, when I came to New York, there was a big... Uh, there was a big network of assistant work, right? And that, because I came from this photo school with a lot of, you know, very successful uh, professionals working in New York, like I found work immediately as an assistant, like grunt. And I didn't care. I just wanted to be around photography. Like I would go get dry cleaning and clean toilets and I do whatever grunt work. I just wanted to be around photography. And I was like, oh, dude, this is great. Like I get paid. Uh, I'm having great catered lunches. I'm around everything I want to be around with, including the occasional lingerie model and whatever. And I just thought like, this is the best job on earth. And then then I started working with photographers who traveled. And I was like, wow, this is, this is it. Like I want to be paid. It's so good. To travel, <laughs> right? So, it's so good, right? We had this that, conversation like on the drive yeah, on over, the drive here. over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was the best scam ever. And then, so then I started working with photographers like Eric Bowman, who I mean, Eric was, you know, he was a fixture in the men's in I mean, in the women's fashion world, and he was married. Uh, he 
I don't know if actually if they're married, but Peter Schlesinger and he were in this big partnership for a very long time. And there was this like, they were just this dynamic duo of art and photography. And he really taught me a lot and exposed me to a lot of amazing things. I work with Horst P. Horst. Uh, in his, when he was in his 80s then, just, but he was, he, at that point he had been rediscovered and we did a lot of campaigns together and he was just spectacular. I've kept every voice recording, like, uh, message tape. You know, he would call me and he had this weird, like, pan, you know, like, pan-European accent, you know, like, hey, baby, it's Horst. Uh, would you feel like coming out to Long Island and doing some pictures, maybe? Like, he was like that. It was just amazing. Like, I was like, you know, so I worked with him. And then I would say the the most influential contemporary that I worked with was my friend Dewey Nix. And, you know, he was at the top of his game. And he was like, I was in my mid-20s. He was in his late 20s, early 30s. And that's when it was just, I mean, we were working for everybody, working for Vogue and working for Vanity Fair and GQ. It just was a very exciting time. And I always just loved editorial photography. Like, I just loved magazines. I loved being around people making magazines. And he was at the top of his game when we worked together. And we were like two grunts schlepping around the world with a bag of cameras. It was just amazing. And then he was really helpful of me getting my first jobs. You know, like, I I think my first job was for Rolling Stone magazine. I uh, I did a story on surf riders. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is like, this is the most amazing thing ever. Writing so for I, Rolling Stone has to be, like, or sh- shooting and, and, like, that's got to be. It was a dream. Yeah. Are you I kidding me? Like, yeah. still at that period, so that was early 90s, like, Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone was really, it was. They're huge. It was, it was, yeah. it was kind of like the shit, yeah. you know. And, um, and then I navigated all those kind of NAS magazines. And, you know, I want, I, I would shoot anything. Like, if someone was like, um. We need a picture of a park bench. Um, it's going to run a quarter page. We have $200. And I was like, uh, being paid to do photography? Great. Let's do it. You know, right. I just wanted to be around it. And I, again, like, I loved being around people making magazines. Did you ever find something you either couldn't shoot, you just, like, couldn't get your head around it, or anything that you shot and you were like, wow, I hate this. I never want to shoot well, this ever f- again. I think the funny thing is, is when I started getting paid a lot of money to shoot commercial work, that's when you sell your soul. Commercial photography? Yeah, like... Yeah catalogs, advertising, that's when you, you, I just sort of lost my soul. Like you become kind of the guy that presses the button on the camera. Somebody else made all the other decisions. That's right. You're a good fire. And the thing is, is I was making significant coin, but I was never so unhappy. And I also was never so physically damaged. Like I was just waking up with bad back and headaches and because I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. So once I learned how to like navigate out of that and then sort of found that little TV gig for a while with Esquire when they launched that and started and then blogs were becoming popular and then I could I had all this kind of outlet there to kind of just create my own thing. Yeah. And then as people responded to that, then I started doing the stuff I loved. That moment was a really interesting moment in in kind of like media history and without going too inside baseball here. Like that moment where Esquire had the TV network and I know you had your your blog, the WM Brown Project, like that was the moment where that golden age of magazines was starting to to decline maybe a little bit. Totally. And everybody had to kind of find like new ways to communicate. So as somebody who was really kind of like a dyed in the wool magazine editorial photographer, how did you navigate making that transition? 
Well, I mean, you saw first the writing on the wall where, you know, people were turning to digital digital, and it uh, it was just cheaper to do digital. And then they realized they didn't need to pay craftsmen anymore, per se. I'm just throwing that out there, not to say digital is not a craft. But, you know, you didn't, the, things became, it was easier, faster, quicker, and cheaper to get done, and more people were doing it, right? The pool of photographers just, like, exploded overnight. So, um I guess, I mean, I had to figure out why I would be a more attractive hire than anyone else. And that was like, you know, I just was like, figure I'll do the just dog and pony show everywhere. Like I'd be the most fun, most um, appealing, get the job done guy ever. And uh, not be difficult. Yes, uh, it just became a yes man. Like, let's just get it done. But I think um, that's when I was, I was just sort of like, maybe I have to find, maybe I have to reinvent myself. Maybe I have to find something else because the writing was on the wall to me that this was drastically changing in terms of how I knew it, how I grew up with it. And was that still a phase where the work was physically hurting you or emotionally hurting? Like, like is there still something where you weren't finding it necessarily rewarding? And to interject a little bit, like, I love your Instagram feed. And I'm yeah. sure we'll get to that at some point. But, like, yeah, there's sure. a certain joy yes. that is in what you put out on Instagram that I really appreciate. And I don't know, like, were you finding that joy? Because it doesn't, there's no way you're fabric. you can't fabricate joy. No. You're either joyful or you're not. Mm. And well, with I think this work, how was that, how did that, is well, that, did you learn that eventually? Or? No, I think that, I, first of all, I love photography. I loved it. What, hap what was happening is I was getting unhappy about it, right? So, but when I started doing the blog, which became the William Brown Project because it had to be separate than Matthew Hironic Photography, right? I was photographing oh, okay. it in a very dumbed down way. Like I had a little Fuji snap camera and I was like not creating images. I was just recording stuff. And then all the all, then as we got this following, all my commercial clients were like, can you photograph it like you do on the William Brown Project? And I was like, you mean all dumbed down with a snappy camera? Like, oh, okay. Sure. And that's when I started liking it again because I was being asked to do and, and present to the work in a, in a way that was truly mine and not... An interpretation. The blog is else. still there, right? The blog is there-ish. Okay. I mean, do yep. guys log into www. anything anymore? Like, I, I don't. Mean, maybe. Maybe. I have. I have the. Uh, there's one page on the blog I have bookmarked, which is your Gravlax recipe, which I make like every two weeks. Now. Same here. Yeah. I make it all the time. Well, I remember what is this? Fill me in. So this is a, a Gravlax, like a salmon, like a cured salmon recipe. Okay. And I remember it must have been like not too long after we met. I was just like scrolling through yeah. WM Brown Project one night and found this. And was like, oh, this will be a nice thing. I'll make like brunch for my wife, you know? Yeah. Uh, make it all the time. It's amazing. There's three great recipes on that site in the archive. Like right, you, can, you can go to, there is a, there's a granola recipe okay. that came Ooh. from a friend of mine. And I call it the Kill Zone Granola. Okay. And it's olive oil based. It is so good. And there is a chicken pot pie. It's a game. I make a game pie because I do a lot of wing shooting. And there's always at the end of a season, like a freezer full of stuff. But it's a, it's basically a chicken pot pie that came out of an old Ducks Unlimited cookbook that was my dad's. It, that is so good. Those three recipes mm. win hearts. All right. Okay? We'll, link, we'll link them up in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll yeah. dig them up. You That's know, awesome. like the, the blog, I mean, the blog has an archive. I just found like Instagram was such an an amazing way to communicate so quickly and on the fly that I didn't have to like build stuff and take time in the morning. You know, like when I was on Blogspot, it was so easy. Like I could bang out a blog Blogspot post in like six minutes. Like RIP Blogspot. Is Blogspot still around? Can you have a Blogspot well, blog? Well, my archive still links to the Blogspot. Okay. I don't know okay. how it aggregates, but, but, but as they got better looking and how like, and then, 
you know, Squarespace came around and all yeah. that. It just was so complicated, the interface, that I just couldn't, I, it was always about the immediacy and how, I had an idea and I would do it quickly. That's why I loved Instagram, or that's why I love Instagram. Yeah. I love the immediacy of it, I, I love the interface, and I love how it communicates without anybody logging in, Yeah. yeah. you know? And that's actually, that's an interesting thing, right? Like the, the, the era of Blogspot was another kind of like little kind of like intermediary mm-hmm. era. Uh, but they were figuring stuff out. The yeah, pieces weren't all in place, but there was enough there to do I work. I liked how raw it yeah, was. I agree. And there's there's something nice about I mean, that's honestly the way I got started in journalism was I had a menswear blog in college that yeah. you know nobody read, but it was fine. Um, but it's a great way to keep a diary. That, yeah, that's and a, it, it also had me writing yeah. Yeah. three, like I set a schedule for myself. I was writing three days a week and it was like in addition to my schoolwork and whatever, like I had to come up with an idea and publish something three days a week, you know, but it was, it was raw. It was photographed with a little point and shoot camera. My parents got me when I, when I was in yeah. college for Hanukkah one year. And like, there was an era where a lot of people had these kind of like raw, like Blogspot or WordPress blogs, mm-hmm. pre Squarespace days. Uh, things weren't polished. Most people were like making their own logos. They all look terrible, you know? Yeah. But there's something raw and unfiltered. You know, yeah. it was it was yeah. fun, and and you don't really see that anymore. Like everything no. today is so polished. I dug through some old bookmarks on my computer actually yesterday and found all these Tumblr Tumblr. Nobody really does anyone really engage with Tumblr anymore. And I, I love Tumblr. I mean, basically, Instagram <clears throat> replaced that kind of idea of yeah. that rapid fire imagery that feeds, right? Um, and. I love Instagram as the interface. I love communicating. I love engagement. I answer anybody who asks a question. I answer the question. Like, so while while we're on while we're on that topic, I, I think like I I watch you engage on it. I watch you put up photos and stories, and like I don't really I don't really question when someone my like youngest sibling's age eighteen like just gets Instagram because it's been around as mm-hmm. long as they've been holding a phone. Right. What do you think your edge is? Because you're in, like, you get it at a level that I don't think people necessarily, but more than I get it. It's like how I don't question, I don't know if anyone here follows Dave from our office. He gets Instagram oh, we'll link, at a level. We'll link up Dave in the show notes too. Yeah. yeah. He gets Instagram at a level that I cannot facilitate mentally. Right. First of all, I think I, I, the, the image making is very important to me. Like I like being a photographer mm-hmm. and I, I love the camera on the iPhone. I think it's just amazing tool. And um, so I like, listen, my Instagram frames, frames a very specific curated part of my life. Like I am very specifically editing out, editing out the boring, disgusting stuff. You're you know not I mean? always just carrying around platters of meat. <laughs> no. And I do, but I do honestly do have genetically low cholesterol. So okay. no more Lipitor comments. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I will say like I'm having, tell you know, man me. how to live his life like that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were neighbors for a while. People, yeah. people probably don't know this, but like Matt and I lived two blocks from each other for, I guess I was in Park Slope for two and a half years. And like what you see, what people see on your Instagram, like is it's edited, but it is also you. Like, you know, I would, we would run into each other on seventh Avenue, like going to a coffee shop on, you know, 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And like, you're dressed the same way you'd yeah. be dressed on your Instagram. Like you're doing the same sorts of things. You're with your dog. You're hanging out with your wife and your daughter. Like th- this is actually you. Like it's not a fabricated personality at all. No. And I, I listen, I, I think framing a very edited version of yourself is important for me, but it's the most authentic version of edited version. Yeah. It really is. Like, and Is um, it edited or maybe you could call it like distilled? It's distilled. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like there's, you know, I think it's, I think you're pulling on an essence rather than cutting out stuff that's not right. 
No, I'm not. No, I'm not cutting out yeah. stuff that. But like you know, um, when I'm walking the dogs and I you know Instagram story with the dog like that I call Squirrel Patrol, right? It's like I have two terriers. It's an aggressive walk. Like I'm not. <laughs> I'm not I'm not posting the, you know, New York Times bag coming up the pocket to pick up like soft stool. Right. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. so we 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 frame the essence of our life and you know, the and stool. I'm also I also like how when you frame certain things that you like, you find like minded people out there. I think that that fraternity that exists, I think is terrific. And I, I love that like with this whole Negroni shtick, you know, like that there's a guy in Boise sitting on his front porch making a Negroni. And he sends me that picture. And I may be at the Villa d'Este having the same. But suddenly we're connected by this thing yeah. in two very, very separate stylistic worlds. But we find things in common. And, I, and that's what I love about Instagram. And I, I have made friends on Instagram. I have gone to people's wedding that I met on Instagram. Like, I just think it's a great way to, to you look at it. And I also think it's a great way to kind of navigate commerce and hospitality and restaurants, you take a quick look and you're like, oh yeah, that's relatable. I like that. I don't care if it's a restaurant or a person or a hotel. And then you make a quick decision right then. Like, is this something that is become, can be, become a part of my life or no? And uh, I like that. Yeah. I mean, the, the one, I won't even call it a downside, but maybe well, let's first take an argument and call it a downside. The one downside of that is there's so much signal, right? Like, how do you filter out the noise? How do you find those like-minded people? Like, what what separates just like, okay, it's a pretty picture. Oh, somebody else is drinking a cocktail from like a, a real sort of like meaningful interaction? Right. Or, or are those still meaningful interactions? I don't know. I think that comes like, it comes in experience. Like, you just kind of get it or you don't get it. You know what I mean? Like It's a gut thing. I think it's a good thing. I also think you can weed through the crap. Like, we're all smart, clever enough and smart enough to realize, like, what seems absurd and ridiculous and what seems correct. You know what I mean? We know when somebody's selling us stuff, regardless if there's a hashtag sponsored or not. And if it's a gut feeling. And, you know, and I don't really care. Like, I'm a consumer. I like being sold stuff. Like, nobody has to, like, you know, there should be no mystery around that. Yeah, right? I agree. And I mean, like, good, good content to use the the c word yeah uh good content is good content right, right. and like if it's paid for by somebody and people are above board about it like fine like if it's good it's good well know? i remember when when all these kind of algorithm algorithms were coming out where people were like oh they're taking all your information and they're gonna sell sell you stuff and i was like if they could take all my information and sell me exactly what i want yeah, something fantastic cool. yeah, great. Yeah, something i actually want yeah great save me the time Take all the information you need. Cookie me out. Like when, I don't. You know what I mean? Like when we were when we were in. We get a t-shirt. Cookie me out. Cookie me out. Cookie me out. Yo, cookie. Too bad well, we don't have episode names here. That would be the episode yeah, name cookie, right there. Cookie me out. I agree. You know, like let's trim. Let's trim the fat. I mean, that being said, I love retail. Like I shop. Listen, if I if I know I need to find Marvis toothpaste, then I can go on Amazon and buy it. That's great, right? But I, when it comes to like clothes and even watches in a way like i like the tactile experience like yeah, and discovery. also the discovery like how that. do i know i even yeah, was yeah. looking for that yeah. neck scarf at drake's well, <laughs> did you go to did you go to the opening of bruce pask's new yeah. shop amazing at, uh, so so for people who don't know bruce pask who used to be at the new york times and is, is now the menswear director at bergdorf goodman uh just opened a new shop and shop uh inside bergdorf's it's called b at bergdorf's and uh 
it's amazing. It's this, it's this beautiful little space. It was actually designed by his brother, yeah. um, who's a Tony Award-winning set designer, uh, to look like his place up in, I think it's Vermont. Uh, so it kind of uh, looks like... Yeah, in Belport, Long Island. In Belport, Long house. Island. Yeah. Okay, so it, it looks like Bruce's house. Yes. And it's, it's styled. Anybody who knows Bruce knows that the clothes are kind of like merchandise in, in a way that looks like Bruce's taste. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's collaborations. It's the sort of thing where the retail experience is kind of like a look inside someone's brain. Yeah. Uh, and that particularly, I mean, Gruce, um, Gruce, the Negronis are kicking in, folks. Just <laughs> slurry 101. It's going to get good from here. Um, Bruce and I kind of grew up together in the editorial business. He was an assistant at GQ. I was an assistant for Dewey Nicks, and he was Jim Moore's assistant. And we were, we kind of were growing up in that editorial world together. And that edit... I mean, I sort of got choked up when there. I mean, I've known Bruce a long time, and I was so proud to see that extension of himself so thoughtfully curated, and it was no mistake that Bruce's hand was on everything. And yeah. it was, and it's hard to see Bruce's hand on some of the Bergdorf men stuff when you have all that kind of outlandish, kind of like urban streetwear, which makes no sense to me. But yeah. I know there's a market out there, and Bruce is in the business of selling clothes, right? But that shop, I thought, was... I just thought it was amazing. Yeah. And you, again, like you said, like you saw Bruce's styling. And, you know, I am most inspired, I think, about the men around me. Like, forget about my, my dad and my grandfather and all that kind of heritage stuff. But I love, like, the, the men that have, like, great style that I witness around me every day. And that could be a Melanese cab driver to Bruce Pask to, to y'all handsome guys walking around the streets of Basel. <laughs> Um, you know, ba- Basel noted menswear capital, uh, <laughs> Basel, Switzerland. Well, I think you guys were trying to do like, I think we're trying to like pull out the, the best PT like moments out of yeah, Basel, which yeah. I, is a challenge. I think is a very, very hard thing yeah. to do, but it, it is, it is manageable. You, you remember how I, I attempted that at Villa Desta yeah. in the sun. Do you remember how sweaty I was that day? <laughs> yes, I do. This is a story not everybody <laughs> so, knows. A couple people know this. I wouldn't take my blazer off. I was so sweaty. It was like. I can't do the math that quickly. It was 25 to 28 Celsius. Like, it was legitimately oh, hot. He's going full Canadian. In the, high, in the sun. In the high 80s, early uh, high 80s. Exactly, yeah. 85, 88, something like that. Yeah. And uh, I was walking around all day approaching beautiful Italian people, more just continental Europe, European people, and being like, hey. <laughs> I'm the sweaty <laughs> I guy. Work, I work for this watch say. I'm definitely not super sweaty, but <laughs> let me pitch you on letting me take and, and like. <laughs> Like yeah, the 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 the. I mean, you had some good tips for the style style stuff. Uh, that was a fun trip. The that was a great. Concorso. I've always I mean, wanted. Concorso's, it's amazing. It's one of the best things in the world. Yeah. Like it's really good. All right, I've I've never been. That to was Como. my first time. I've never been to Villa d'Este. Well, I feel kind of left. I feel kind of left out in at this a table. boat as we're going from the Grand Hotel Tremezzo to the, Villa d'Este. Yeah, the Tremezzo is amazing. All right, so so for people Wild. who don't know where you're talking about or what Concorso okay, I can is. Yeah, back like, what's the, what's the deal here? So Concorso d'Eleganza is this incredible car show. I mean, there's maybe five, six really incredible car shows happening in the world right now. Like True Collector, you're not allowed to bring the car twice. Bonkers stuff. You have to go every year if you really love car. If you're in that world because you want to see everything and people bring insane things. I, I And Matt, you can balance if I'm off, but I think it's the best show, best car show in the world. Well, I think first of all, and, the fact where that is it's, it? it's in it's on it's in Lake Como right. in Italy, which is like what a good hour, two hours as the crow flies from yeah. Milan, and it is 
first of all, it's a magical place, right? You're on this lake, you're being shuttled around in Rivas, and it's like, it is Negroni Central. Yeah. The food is amazing. By the way, Villa Desta has a hot tip. Probably the one of the best club sandwiches okay. in, in the world. We're going to someday, we're going to do a club sandwich episode. Yeah. Can I tell you something? The club sandwich is my barometer for the best of best room 100%. service. 100%. So I, we talked about this on the episode we did with uh, Staline Volandes, but uh, my favorite town and country story of all time, I should go look up what issue this is in and like we should link it up or something at, at some point, but uh, they did this story where they tested luxury hotels, like famous world event, like Le Maurice, the Carlisle, like really world famous hotels. By visiting them and ordering, it was a club sandwich and a Bloody Mary. Perfect. Okay. And that was that was the barometer for that how good the hotel is. Yeah, that is exactly. Smart. It was like, what hotel can you go to, go down to the restaurant at any time of day, get a good club sandwich and a good, good Bloody Mary and be happy? Yeah. Uh, and that to me, like as somebody who travels a lot for work and for is sure. often, you know, trying to cram some food in my mouth while I crank through a story on deadline. Yeah. A good club sandwich is a lifesaver, man. And I get, you know, sometimes I get a lot of... I get a lot of crap from friends who travel around. They're like, you're in Italy. You should be eating pasta. It's like, okay. I eat a lot of pasta when I'm there. And it's like, sometimes you just want to like nestle into a club sandwich, particularly when you have cultures, <clears throat> French, Italian, you know, the, the select few in America that really get it in that way, that really have their own take on it. That is yeah. so good. I The George Sank in Paris, like that is an epic club sandwich and i actually made them bring me to the kitchen to see how they make it and there's some really good tips in there. okay okay, okay. <laughs> i won't reveal them all right now <laughs> okay okay right, yeah. i mean to to bring the the como back into view for people who have seen casino royale it's where uh oh, yeah. daniel craig's james bond recovers after being brutalized that was a very delicate way to put uh, that i was trying to think of a fair way to say yeah, that but yeah, yeah well it was done. a tough scene and that's where he uh kind of comes back and yeah george clooney lives there it's this yeah. very like unbelievably gorgeous uh dark waters big rising sort of low lowland peaks and a lot of green a lot of granite yeah and then crazy architecture i mean I was lucky enough to basically be there just to take pictures of cars and people and i just anywhere you pointed a camera was incredible mm-hmm. Even outside of cars and people, it's all good. I think the funny thing about Lake Como is, um, which would never happen in America, nobody swims in it. No, no. They got really upset with me when I said I was, if I could jump off the dock. <laughs> yeah. I think it's insane. I, I, and I can't nobody get a, swims? I can't get a straight answer. I swam in it because I love lakes. I was I, told nobody swims I in it. I love swimming in lakes. I love it. But I was there in mid-July in a boat on a Friday and nobody... Pretty much barely anybody was on the lake, and certainly no one was swimming. I mean, if that was in America, there'd be so many jet skis and yeah, water, skiers sure. and water skiers and, like, that flotation devices. Not seeing a water People skier drinking, on that uh, water. bush light. Yeah. Lots of bush yeah. lights. Absolutely. Yeah. But not seeing a water skier on water like that, incredible. And then, so we were at the Grand Hotel Tremezzo, which is an incredible hotel. The, the front facade of it is the basis for the Grand Budapest Hotel from the Wes Anderson film. It's it's a legitimately incredible property, and yeah. then you go across one street, a small street that's not that busy, and they have a whole dock system which has a pool in it, and the pool is in the lake. So that tells you what they're thinking of this lake to right. begin with. The, the, yeah, I get out there and I ask a guy like, "I'm in my bathing suit. I'm in hotel slippers. Hey, you think I could? Can I jump off this dock? I don't see a ladder." And he's like, "No, no, no. We have two pools." <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "No, no, no. I want to swim in the. I want to swim in the water. Like it, like." 
because that's what I like. It, it's just like, and he's like, mm, it's very deep. And I'm like, I'm really only concerned with the top like six foot three of it, bro. Uh, yeah. Like, it, we're good. It's like Loch Ness. <laughs> yeah. It's like Loch Ness is in there I, with those guys. I'm only concerned with the top six yeah. three. I only need so much of it. Yeah. Like, my head's staying above water, so we can get away with like, Five eight of this. No, if anybody's out there that can explain the phenomenon, they're no not one, interested in getting interesting. In that water. Yeah, yeah. Hit us, hit us up if you know why nobody swims in that lake. Let us know. If you don't like deep water, that's a good reason. Because what do they tell us? Fourteen hundred meters. I know, but like Tahoe is. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. For sure. Still, it's a real deep lake. Yes, I don't <laughs> like swimming in shallow stuff. Uh, you know, who yeah, wants to get a mucky bottom? Like, where give you me... touch seaweed with your feet. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. We, have, we have another episode title there. Mucky bottom. Mucky, mucky bottom. bottom. Yeah. Next mucky. on Nucky Mucky Bottoms. Uh, <laughs> Matt's first date. <laughs> Wait, that, can there you, we can go. You that I can hear the Negroni uh, crinkle. And now I'll look at this week's sponsor. Hey guys, Stephen Pulverant here. If you like what we do here at Hodinky Radio, then I think you're really going to love the Hodinky Magazine. It's our biannual print publication, and it goes way beyond the world of just watches. We cover watches, of course, but we also take a look at things like vintage cars, design, architecture, fashion, travel, and a whole lot more. We bring in a lot of voices from this wild and crazy world we inhabit. Volume 4 is coming soon, but you can find volumes 1 through 3 on shop.hodinky.com, and I really recommend that you check them out. All right, let's get back to the show. So, Matt, in, in addition to all the other things you're interested in, you are obviously a watch guy. You wouldn't be here if you weren't at least a little bit of a watch guy. That's true. Uh, and a little over a year ago, although it feels like a lot longer than that, you wrote a book, right? Yeah. So I wrote A uh, Man and His Watch. Yeah. A Published. much beloved book, a, a hot hot seller in the Hodinky shop, I know. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for your support. Of, of course, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about how that book came about? Because obviously you do a lot of things. So how did you end up, you were like, I want to do a book. How did it become a book about watches? Well, first of all, I want, I'd like to quote my friend Stephen Lewis, who is the very, very talented photographer who shot that book, who said, Matt, it's so, it's so amazing. Like, you've actually written more books than you've read. You know, it, <laughs> and it, you know, it's like it was certainly not like something that was on my career kind of career trajectory, right? Like, I'm a lazy reader. I'm not a great writer. I'm heavily top edited when I wrote for the magazine and stuff like that. But I really like um, emotional stories. Like, I love, I love great stories. I love great stories about things. You know, and I. I, if I'm in a flea market, I want to hear that story about the set of snowshoes or somebody's car or whatever, right? So when I started navigating this watch world um, as a, quote, editor for Condé Nast Traveler, I was running into great characters like everyone here and kind of cool stories. And I just was like, wow, this is like so amazing. Like, there's some really heartfelt emotional connections here. And there's some great storytelling. And I was sitting having coffee with my wife and she was like, that's your book, dummy. Like <laughs> your that, wife, who is also a media professional. Yeah, by by the way. Yeah, who's been in the magazine business as long as I have. You know, like like we both been in one facet or another of the magazine business for twenty five years. Twenty five yeah. years. Because Artisan, who is my publisher, who does some of the most amazing, most beautiful books, mostly about cooking. Like they do great cookbooks. Like all of Thomas Keller's books are done there. Sean Brock, you know. You know, they had, we had been in conversations about kind of figuring out a little bit something for the man space, 
and you know, I'm so scattered and I think like, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a sniper, you know, like I think very broadly, you know, I couldn't figure it out. And that's when she said, you know, that's your book. These stories that you come back from, these trips to Geneva, Switzerland, whatever, a lunch on the Upper East Side, and you come back and talk about these stories, this is your book. I was like, oh my God, you're absolutely right. So I knew I had a, I knew it was a hard sell for a, a company that pretty much makes cookbooks. So I had Stephen Lewis and I, we, one day up in my house in upstate New York, I pulled out a bunch of watches from my collection. And I was like, Steve, I have this idea, like this is how maybe we should photograph it, but can you help me translate it? So we shot a test, like six watches. So I walked into Artisan and I said, so I have this book idea. And they said, what is it? They said, oh, it's a watch book. And they were like, no. <laughs> we, okay. don't want, uh-uh. we don't want to do a watch book. Actually, Hard no. Actually, we just turned that idea down. And I was like, well, can you just listen to the pitch? And I pulled out all the imagery, which I had Stephen beautifully printed of these 11 by 14 of these watches. And it showed like all the patina, all the dirt, all the life, the, all the scratches, like nothing was retouched. And then I wrote one story, which was my own personal story, which was about the watch that was left to me by my father. Well, that was it. They were like, I said, it's a storybook. It's not a watch book. And they said, let's do it. And then I took about, I would say, a year kind of collecting these stories and finding these great stories and putting this edit together and then Stephen photographing them. And, you know, I approached it in a very naive way in the beginning. Like, I'm not like a techie watch guy who's a, you know, I don't have a lot of knowledge about the intricacies of brands and and each model. And I I just, my brain doesn't work that way. But I knew a good story when I heard it. And um, we put those all together and it resonated. You know, because Absolutely. it wasn't about the most expensive watch. It was about the watch with the best story. And that could have been a Casio F7, or it could have been, you know, a, that Paul Newman Daytona um, that was on the wrist of his daughter that I was lucky enough to meet. You Do know? you have any favorite stories from the book? Like anything like maybe behind the scenes that stands out while you were producing the book? You know, Mario Andretti, oh, he's so awesome. <laughs> you know, like... I mean, of course, I loved him because I love cars and I grew up with him as the race car driver. And, and, you know, and any time you were driving like a maniac with an old uncle, he was like, what the the hell you think you are, Mario Andretti? You know, it was like that kind of thing, right? But to pick up the phone and call him, because I had, there was that Jack Hoyer, gold Hoyer uh, that he wore when he raced for Ferrari, right? And that was to me... So cool. It's amazing, right? It's <laughs> a, it got the burn marks. You see the smile on James' face right It's such a rad right watch. Right? With the burn marks yeah, on yeah. the inside. So I knew that he had that. So I called, and I, I, he still lives in Pennsylvania. I got his assistant, and she was like, just one second. And I said what it was about. I was like, I want to talk to him. I don't want to talk about Mario about race car driving. I want to talk to him about watches. And she was like, one second. He gets on the phone. He says, why don't you come out to Pennsylvania tomorrow? And I was like, okay. So I called Steve. I called my friend Mara, who worked with me, a traveler who's a car race, race car obsessed. And I said, we're all going to Mario Andretti's house tomorrow. I don't care if you have something going on, like you cancel it. And we all drove out there and he had a table, this big round table, about six foot, right? And he had dumped every single watch that he had ever been given, collected, made, won, whatever. And it was just unbelievable. And he had like cheap little plastic throwaway Ferrari watches to in the middle were a pile of Daytonas. And I was like so caught up in the moment. It was so naive. And I was like, Mario, look at all these Daytonas you have here. And he goes, well, you know, I did win that race a couple times. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And uh, 
he was just so generous and fun. And I brought him olive oil from my friend's uh, uh, Frankie's, you know, and he just was just so completely generous. And I was just so taken aback by how the watch world brings those kind of intimacies together and yeah. how people like to share their stories. I did find out that, you know, there were watch guys, like car guys have been telling their story like forever, right? Yeah. You say, oh, uh, what year is that car? Like, as ah, it's a 1967 Corvette. I bought it. You know, they could just spew. They've been thinking about that a long time. Watch guys, like a lot of the storytelling I had to kind of coaxed out because it wasn't something that anyone really pushed them on in terms of the intimacy of the story. But once you kind of opened up those gates, yeah. you really got good storytelling. And of course, like I put a put hundred more stories in there. It was like, like peeling an onion. But after a while, the publisher was like, no more watches, <laughs> you know? Is there uh, one that ended up on the cutting room floor that was like the last one to get cut? No, there were ones that slipped through the cracks that I was very, very disappointed about. The the Martin Luther King Timex that is actually still sitting in a museum, like a, a vitrine in the Atlanta airport. Like I really wanted that Timex. Because I had JFK's inaugural watch, I wanted that Timex. And I had spoken to everyone at the foundation and how important that watch was to him. And he's often photographed with this Rolex date, day, date or uh, date just, right? Um, but that Timex you know, it was such a bit of intimate storytelling and it just fell through some legal cracks. Like it was, yes, yes, yes. It got to the lawyers and they were like, no. And I hate no. I hate it. I don't want to hear no, ever. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, there was a 9-11 watch that I couldn't get, you know, I got the family's permission, but I couldn't get it out of the museum with through all, it was just bureaucracy got in the way of some very okay. cool stuff. And, and I really wanted Jay-Z so bad, but he is like so immortal <laughs> that and I remember I'd get up I, he's a tough guy to get to he's the king he's a tough guy to get to and I understand why but like and I'm not bitter about that one I'm more bitter about the 9-11 watch more than anything um, but the Jay, I remember I had an email to an assistant that a friend was a friend of hers and every morning I'd get up at 7am and I'd crack off an email any news from Jay and she would answer me no not yet you know every single day and then finally I think after like five months I was just like we're not getting an answer, are we? And she's like, probably not. <laughs> you know, but she was very generous yeah. and very sweet. Uh, but I just wanted that so badly. It's a kind, kind defeat. Exactly. It was a yeah. kind defeat. It, because for me, the, the, in terms of the storytelling, like I was a huge fan of 90s hip hop. And I love the I loved the, the the lyrical relationship to like the Rolex president or the platinum president and what that meant in terms of storytelling and kind of success and what that identified. And as a fan of hip hop, like I wanted that represented, you know? And then, and then fun, funny enough, like Nas told such a nice story and, and actually was the, in terms of, I think the generation of hip hop, you know, the paddock became that grail watch, right? Mm -hmm. And um, to me, he touched so brilliantly on the relationship of two worlds that I was really happy because that part of the, kind of cultural ecosystem I wanted in yeah. the watch book. Yeah. You know? So. I have to say, funnily enough, I think my favorite watch from the book is a digital watch. Um, I love the Casio that um, Tom Sachs wrote oh. in the book, The New Bedford. Amazing. Uh, for people who don't know, first of all, you should, you should, get, you should get Matt's book. Uh, but essentially, Tom Sachs, the artist, who's, whose office, whose studio is right near our office. Yeah. Um, Tom did a riff on the Hermes Cape Cod, uh, which, you know, is famous for having the, the double tour, the double wrap strap. 
Uh, so he basically modded a like twenty dollar you know drugstore Casio watch. It was a G Shock. It was a G. Oh, you're right. It was yeah. a G Shock. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with with a double wrap strap and named it the New Bedford, which is the sort of like working class community where yeah. all of the like you know servants and housekeepers and yeah. outside staff Cape Cod. work outside Cape Cod. And I thought it was this brilliant moment of of like combining luxury with a little bit of social criticism, yeah. with also like kind of like insider watch knowledge. It's yeah. it's just such a fun, interesting story. Well, uh, Tom Tom so brilliantly brilliantly plays with what our idea of luxury is in yeah. mass market. Like, I loved when he would do those McDonald's trays of, like, cut-up Hermes boxes or Chanel boxes. Yeah. Like, playing with the duality. The, uh, of, Chanel guillotine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's brilliant. And I, I love his craft and the fact that he kind of hand-sewn this bridled leather onto this G-Shock. And, of course, he loves G-Shock. He loves them for their utility and their, you know, their simplicity and purity of design. And, um, yeah, he's that was a really terrific one. I also think because it was so sculptural, sculptural, and that and it was so homemade. Right. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can really see like the stitching is uneven. Yeah. It's all done by hand. Yeah. And I love Dimitri's story about the the Timex Indiglo and yeah. And you who's, know, who's Dimitri for people? Uh, so know? Dimitri was he's moved on to another property that's still owned by Jeff Klein is at the Sunset Tower Hotel. He's the keeper of the gate, this kind of very effervescent maitre d'. And there's this Bill Murray story where um, it's a very, very dark. It's a great story. It's so good, right? It's such a, um, it's a very, very dark dining room in this hotel at the Tower Bar. And Bill Murray was a big fan of the hotel there, lived there, stayed there for a while. And he would always come into the restaurant and say to Dimitri, like, what time is it? And he was like, what, Mr. Murray? I mean, and he couldn't see his watch because it's so dark in there. So Bill Murray says, give me that watch. He takes it off his wrist, and Murray drops it in his pocket, takes off his Timex in the glow, gives it to Dimitri. Put, Dimitri puts it on his wrist, and Bill goes, um, what time is it? And he clicks it, and he's like, 8.35. <laughs> you know, like, he's like, that's the watch you should be wearing. And he never took it off his wrist. And he said sometimes Bill Murray, when he stays in the hotel, will call down to the dining room and just ask for Dimitri and ask him what time it is. Nice. Yeah. And, you know, that was, you know, again, like, that was not an expensive watch, but the, the terms of the value and how precious that story is and what it now means to Dimitri. Yeah. It's a priceless watch. Yeah. It's priceless. What's that concept of a, of a watch becoming something of a totem to your experiences? Just you. Yes. And like you're able to capture that, I, I think, beautifully in the book. Uh, but it, it's really fun to see that from all walks of life. Yeah. From Dimitri to everybody else in the book. I mean, Ben's in there. Well, I think also Ben's story is really touching and thoughtful. And then you, you yeah. understand the trajectory of his life when, you know, <clears throat> when a grant, when a grandfather or anyone special in your life gives you something that makes you view the world differently. Yeah. And that is often a wristwatch. And, and the impact that something like that can have, I mean, mm. you know, speaking very selfishly, like, that that watch is why I have a job. You know that watch. That's right. That watch created something yeah. much bigger than than the impact on one person. That watch ended up impacting, I think, arguably the watch the watch industry. Yeah. Certainly the people who, who work with us. Yep. You know the whole culture. Yeah, and it's it's cool that these little things can have have that impact. But I, I wonder, you know, you wrote a man and his watch. Mm-hmm. I know you have a few watches. Yeah. Can you tell us about some of your watches and the 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 meaning that each carries for you? Because I know you're you're not somebody who just sort of like hoards things. You're somebody who each of these things sort of has to have meaning for you. Did you hear that, everyone in my household? I am not someone who hoards things. Yeah. Sorry, y- okay. Yolanda, I should just not have said record. that. Sorry about that. Uh, I am a curator. Okay. I'm an archivist. Okay. Um, no, I 
I'm, I'm very, my tastes are very, very much framed by how I grew up, right? And I wanted to be, I love sports, sport, sport tool watches, right? Like I want to, I wear a Submariner because I, God, I want to pretend like I'm a Navy diver or maybe I'm James Bond. I wear an Omega Speedmaster because I kind of grew up with the space program. Like I love all those reference points, you know? Yeah. I had an uncle worked for Pan Am. That's why I love GMTs. Like I just... I always felt like I was gravitating to a very specific style of watch early on. And um, I stayed true to that path because I just aesthetically liked them. I mean, half the time when I wear, you know, that's, I've had a Submariner for a very, very long time, a 5513. And I don't even tell, I mean, I just look at it with frequency because I love looking at it. Yeah, like it's gorgeous. It's, it's perfection. It's yeah. so beautiful. And it also reminds me of a, a very specific time. Like I think about, okay, that watch was made in the mid 1960s and what was going on then. And in terms of the nod to industrial design and all that stuff, like that's the way I look at watches. So I, I mean, I, I have maybe a dozen, I mean, I should have bought piles of those Submariners when I was buying them. But yeah, we can't. We can't that's, get that's into that. a story for another time. Move on. No. Move, just move on. It's just just move on. It's, it's depressing <laughs> as hell. We all but, could have been but, buying you know, Apple. Also, with that being said, I never was buying stuff in a very gluttonous way. I was buying the one thing, and I, I would say this is great advice. You know, you buy the, the best version of that thing you want, and if you can't get there, you wait and you save, and then you get there and you buy that thing. And then you move on. Like, I think I looked at photography that way. I looked at cameras that way. I, you know, I was not going to, you know, I was not going to buy a pile, a pile of like cheap SLRs. I was like, I want a Leica and I'm going to wait for it. And that's what I did. And um, I think I like navigating my life and not, you know, I don't like having lots of disposable things. I like things for life. And if that's a pair of shoes or a watch or you know, whatever that is. So how would you, let's say we wanted to action that philosophy. Everyone listening, if you wanted to offer some tips for how to approach buying things yeah, from that mentality, which I think is a very like approachable mentality, but it's it requires some thoughtfulness. You know, we had Matt Jacobson on and he spoke about the fact that like he won't replace anything unless it's with something better. Yes. So it's a very much, not necessarily a one in, one out, but like a, a general level of like appreciating improvement in the I, I totally agree with that. Like I have my eyes on a watch, a vintage okay. watch. And I was saying to myself, okay, I could probably go bleed the bank account and get this. That's not very practical. It's not very smart. For it's sure. not very adult. So I was like, okay, how many chess moves could I put together mm -hmm. to get there? And it's going to take a this bit of... This is a classic Hodinkee problem. It's yeah. more fun It's more fun this way, I swear. It's Everyone who's listening, it's more fun. Listen, I have... And the I harder think, it is I to think get. Matt Jacobson... Yeah, you got to pull some shit to yeah, get yeah, something yeah. or you, you got to really earn You got to bleed a little bit. You yeah. got to bleed a little bit. Yeah. And guess what? The hunt and the journey is part of the game. I think it's like... Yeah. It's more than half of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I feel the same way when I go out looking for vintage spirits or... Um, a crazy one-off car or, you know, because I'm dealing, I, I'm not, I'm dealing with a very specific budget restriction, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, that being said, like Matt Jacobson, who probably is not in the same budgetary restriction as me, he has such the most, he has the most amazing edit of stuff. Like the this, taste, the this, taste is great. The taste yeah, level yeah. and the thoughtfulness of those purchases that, 
that I <laughs> may sound frivolous, but I and you know I envy that. Like it's you know the level is it's just so thoughtful and smart, and uh, it, it's a great lesson. You know, so you have one end of the spectrum that probably can get there quicker than most of us, but I I still think it's important to follow that journey of. You know, we're just not locusts, you know, feeding, 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 feeding. And then you're like, okay, I got it all. You know, it's like, a little you know, bit of patience, patience, and lots of knowledge, patience, and also use your resources, resources, like people who are out there that are so much more knowledgeable than you that, that can lead you down the right path or give you the right advice on doing that. I don't care if it's like, I always answer vintage barber questions, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I think that's, I you love. You actually answered a vintage barber question for me. So Wait, yeah. which one was that? I wrote you about jackets, winter jackets. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. I, I mean, want, I need something. You know, moved to Toronto and I need something like legit warm. And I ended up buying a Fall Raven, which oh, is which just are, a, which a, is great. I, the quality is incredible. But they're pulling on barber style. That's right. They're not informing their own look. But, but yeah, yeah, I mean, but you I, wrote me back and you're like, you go this way, you go this way, you go this way. You gave me a few plays. Well, I say use your resources, right? Yeah. Like you, you know, use the the most knowledgeable resource that who's going to give you the insider tip and insider track. And, you know, I, I, I used to navigate all these old timers who were like, were flea market guys and stuff like that in upstate New York. And, you know, they were sort of like mush. If anyone ever, this is going to be a weird analogy, but like, you know, <laughs> if anybody knows a mushroom hunter, mm. like mushroom hunters never give up their turf. They will lead you close and they will advise you and they will nurture you, but they do not give you the spot because that's their spot and they earned it. I feel a little bit about of like the, like navigating the vintage world of stuff. Like I will lead you down the path, but I am not bringing you to that exact, you know, vintage. It's bar in this. Rack. It's in this place. That rack. But the, whatever. But the yeah. funny. The funny yeah. thing is, though, right? Like, I I think that's right to a certain extent. But you know, you're you're still at the end of the day, you're a media guy, right? Like whether it's it's a magazine or Instagram or whatever, and a lot of that is about what we would call like like service journalism, right? Like sure. it, it is about showing people that spot. This is the store where you can get that unbelievable yep. piece of glassware that's going to make your next Negroni the best Negroni. Well, this is where you can get that vintage jacket that is going to completely change next winter for you, right? So mm-hmm. there's this element of you have to be selective about it. Mm-hmm. But, but a lot of that is about kind of like sharing those things, but sharing them in a sort of safe space, right? For people who are, are like-minded and who you can sort of like trust with that yeah. knowledge. Well, I think one of the biggest things, I, I mean, friends, intimates, who would give me crap if there was some great little Italian hotel somewhere and they were like, you can't report about this because you're going to ruin it. And da, da, da. you're like, yeah. you're not going to ruin it. You're going to bring more <clears throat> like-minded people. You're going to you're gonna keep it in business is what you're going to do. That's right. Yeah. But there's also, there's also a consideration between informing, helping inform someone's level of taste and just telling them where they should stay on a holiday or what right. jacket to buy. And well, I think I, one is one in my opinion, this is very personal. I would rather have the latter where I'm having I, I would follow your account or or you know I could list a handful of others where I feel like even if I never visit any of these stores or drink any of these drinks that you had, it still informs a general level like a vocabulary. Sure. Which I can apply in my in in my travels in my exploration, yeah. so I may not be tracing your footsteps, but I know where you walked, and and like like I think there's some value in that. Well, there's a lot of times where people I get these DMs, and uh, there's these questions like, you know, people I don't know, obviously, and yeah. they're like, "Hey, I'm going to uh, I'm going to Paris. Could I get your uh, 
top 20 favorite bu- and I'm like <laughs> you're <laughs> kidding me right are you, like, are you gonna one, pay me a dollar a word yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. seriously it's like I don't even like I don't even give that to my mom like yeah, I mean like on. no I listen I I don't I just think it's naive right like and often a lot of the times people say like hey I'm heading to Milan and worship I'm like follow the gram baby follow the gram like it's all there all that information is yeah. there um I or like I always will say you know, people say, oh, what is your top 10 hits for Paris? And I was like, uh, well, one to, and then I, just walk. That's right. I'm like, go to Harry's bar. Great Negroni, great Bloody Mary Harry's bar. Like I always will answer something, but yeah. I think it's unrealistic everyone out there to like get, you know, anybody's top 10 hits on anything. If you really aren't, it, that's a lot of work to, to, to deal with that stuff. You know what I mean? And even if, you know, like I said, even if you're a really dear friend or relative, you're getting a much edited version of that yeah. stuff. You know? Yeah. So before we run out of time, there's there's one more thing I want to make sure we get to, which is your new magazine. You know, we've talked about the move yes. away from magazines, but you wrote a book and now you're doing a magazine. You're you're pretty hard in on, uh, on print. Well, listen, I... As I watch... Uh, I'll be very, very quick about this. As I watch Leg- Legacy Publishing kind of lose its way, kind of stumble, make things that I thought were not sort of not as beautiful as I remember them and kind of, you know, kind of advertising dollars drying up and then kind of scrambling to figure out, are we a digital medium or are we a print medium? I said, you know what, listen, we cannot let this die. And I think you guys are a great example. Like doing what you do with a print uh, object is, is so great right? And I think what Waco does at the rake is so great. Like, I can't do either. I, I can't do what you do, and I can't do what Wei does. But I know that there, somewhere in the middle, there's all this other stuff that I may not be an authority on, but I'm definitely opinionated about. And I just like telling those stories. And I felt like this, I love print because you don't have to charge it. It doesn't take a battery. It could take a hit at the pool. It's still useful. You roll it up in your pocket. You bring it on the subway. You revisit it. I love the way ink reflects off a page, like all that stuff. It works on an airplane. It works when on an airplane. nothing air- else works. That's right. One piece of print will always work. And on the subway. And on the subway. There you go. And, and I also was surrounded by all these talented people, writers, photographers, designers, who I was like, who are losing their outlets for this stuff. And what photographer doesn't want to see their stuff printed, right? Yeah, that's very it's true. the best. Right? So I just felt- If you're a photographer and you're not printing your work, total aside, go print your work. Go print your work. Yeah. It's not the same on a screen. Yeah. It's not. Sorry, that's a quick, quick PSA. Yeah. And I think that's very, very good advice. And, you know, and I had, and, you know- And when I reached out to all these kind of pedigree friends, photographers, writers, whatever, they were just like, whatever you need. This is great. We, yeah, of course we support this. And, you know, I had been waiting for a magazine like this for a long time. Like some, something that spoke to the whole version of myself, like the guy who likes watches, but the guy who also likes, you know, food and the guy who likes to do a little wing shooting and fishing and the guy who likes cars and, you know, and the guy who collects too many vintage wax cotton coats. And, you know, so I felt like, I bet I'm not alone. I bet there's at least yeah. 5,000 guys out there. Like, And then, so over the course of a couple months, we put this all together. And the idea also was to put it out quarterly and seasonally because I felt, particularly men in the Northeast, dressed differently, drove differently, ate differently based on seasons. So yeah. that was important to me to kind of approach that way. We cannot let, let all this schlocky print stuff die. Of course it should die. But let's create quality, thoughtful, evergreen stuff that does not go on the recycler, 
that stays on the shelf, that gets discovered by a next generation like I did growing up looking at old Vanity Fairs and GQs and House and Gardens or whatever. And you know, guess what? You can't Google everything. Like, how do you even know that you like something until you discover it? Like, that's what this magazine is about, which is not about, it's, it's, it's this kind of general point first, of view on this, on this lifestyle, yeah. men's the, lifestyle thing. The thing about that lifestyle, too, that I think is so interesting and, and kind of carries through everything you do, right, is this really unaffected juxtaposition of high and low, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can be at the Grand Hotel Tremezzo, mm-hmm. you know, on Lake Como, drinking a Negroni, you know, riding in a Riva, you know, really, like, the highest luxury you can possibly imagine. But, like... You're also happy, like, kicking back on a porch, drinking a Jenny Light, and, you know, Absolutely. wearing a barber jacket. And there's something about that that can so often feel affected. And with, with you and, you know, the magazine is, is the W.M. Brown magazine, it, it feels kind of natural. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you, I mean, I know it's a byproduct of, of you and who you are, but how do you kind of balance those things and, and make sure that it, it stays feeling authentic and, and real and relatable? I think I realized that I was a guy from Binghamton. You know, like I grew up... It's a roots thing? It's a roots thing. Like I was a second generation. Like my grandparents came came from Italy and from Czechoslovakia. They made their way um, making shoes in upstate New York. My mom was first generation. My dad was. I loved growing up there around all that stuff. And um, my dad was a very well-balanced kind of country squire who was a sign painter and illustrator and went to work within like... 501s and Red Wings in a Barracuda jacket, but like had Italian tailors in Harris Tweed jackets. You know what I mean? It was a, it was just sort of what I was around, right? And then, of course, I had all these aspirations to be this kind of like, um, you know, that movie Breaking Away it was in, you know, about the kid who just wanted to be the Italian, mm-hmm. you know, bicycle, you know, um, bicycle racer. Like I was sort of like that kid. I wanted to pretend I was European. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I was like, what the hell am I doing? Like... Yeah, I could be, I could aspire for all those things, but also love where I came from and all that kind of great, like, I'm sorry, Labatt's on tap and chicken wings is like one of the, like, my, put the gun to my head. That's like one of my last meals. Like, you know, enough, (laughs) you know, enough foamy food in Geneva. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So I I just think I recognized um, that who, who, who the whole version of myself was, which was very much from this place that I was not going to abandon because I, I really love it. But also it's nice to be at the Trey Mezzo kicking back with spritzes by the pool. And it is. who wouldn't deny oh, yeah, themselves we had, that? We had a that, lovely afternoon at that pool, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. That combination of, of <laughs> yeah. aspiration and like kind of coming to peace with where you're from is I think a really special thing. I mean, James, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how you feel about it, but like I grew up in Austin, Texas. My parents are from from the Northeast, from from New York and Pennsylvania. And when I was growing up, I re- I really kind of like resented being in Texas. Mm-hmm. It was like, what the hell am I doing in this like out in the, out in the boonies? Like, well, what the hell? And I grew up in Austin, like not really in the boonies. But I was like, what am I doing here? You know. And now with some some hindsight, it's like that was that was a pretty great place yeah. to grow up. And I, I went back recently. My parents have since moved, so I, I hadn't been back in a long time. And I went back and realized like this is great. And like, this is really a big part of who I am yeah. and coming to peace with the idea that like I can have breakfast tacos in East Austin with like the buddies I grew oh, up torches. with. Talk, oh, talk yeah, to me about torches. Yeah, we kid. can, we can yeah. talk torches all day, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I can, I can have torches tacos on South Congress, uh, and also, you know, go to the, you know, whatever, Jersonk in Paris. And like, those are both a part of me. And, good and, is good. 
Good is yeah, good. good is good, and being able to come it's to peace with that is, is a pretty yeah. special thing. Well, I also, I think my high school survival was about being able to navigate all social groups, mm. and I think that's a very interesting life lesson. Like, like I had to navigate the jocks. You're a bit of and, a gen- generalist? And, yeah, I mean, I was like the yearbook nerd photographer, and like, okay. you know, I had access to all these yeah, groups. Yeah, man, yearbook photographers. I was... We should talk about that. I, I, I loved it because it basically got me out of class 80, 85% of the time. You know 100%, I mean? yeah. And I just loved photographing the girls' track team. Sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I apologize I, sh- for I that. shot a lot of, like, high school football in Texas, <laughs> which is a little bit different, but yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think learning to kind of navigate all those worlds is very... Um, we could do another show on that. Yeah, for sure. High school yearbook photography? I was trying to remember the Friday Night Lights, Clear Eyes... Full hearts, can't, can't lose. Clear eyes, full heart. If I could have called that out, we'll cut this. That is but the if I second. That is the <laughs> second uh, Friday Night Lights reference <laughs> on this show. Yeah. All right. If I could have called that out, I couldn't. I could not place Kyle Chandler's See, line. That was a different motto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> empty, empty pint glasses, uh, Canadian beer <laughs> of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> is this a big edit through here? This yeah, one? probably. Okay. Yeah, 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 probably. Yeah. I mean, learning to navigate all those worlds, I think, was very was a very interesting life lesson as, as we navigate all these other kind of worlds as adults and yeah. how, you know, it's just, I mean, it's just three or four steps behind high school. It's just all the same people. It's, it's all, all high same, school. It's all the same thing. Yeah. What I think is really interesting is how that perspective that you've just talked about, about, you know, high school and then in, into other elements literally is reflected in the work that you do now, where it can be anything that you cover, but you cover it with the same enthusiasm. Yeah. Which I think is, in my opinion, why I would follow somebody like you around. I am incredibly enthusiastic. You absolutely are. You know, but I, like, it doesn't matter if it, it was literally like we, it doesn't matter anytime I've ever interfaced with you, it doesn't matter what it is. If you're into it, you're into it. And you have a reason for being into it. And there's a thoughtfulness to it. And I think that like permeates your work. And it's why what you put forth. And, you know, I mentioned joyfulness earlier, and it's something that I, I try and be cognizant of like joyfulness and gratitude and those yeah. sort of things because I think they they work together, and it seems like you have a really interesting kind of power power. Uh, you have a really interesting way of kind of connecting with the industry in a way that I think is is accessible, regardless of whether you're covering something like a, a, a you know an auto show in Italy mm-hmm. that's incredibly expensive or. Uh, Negroni, which you made in a bottle that literally says Negroni on the side of it in in press, yeah, letter in press letter, and it, it all kind of. I like that there's a tone that matches throughout the whole thing, so it doesn't really matter because I don't. You know, Stephen talked about where he came up and you came up, and and like I came up in like a small town, Ontario. Like none of this makes any sense to me. I should be talking about going for a rip and hitting Tim Hortons and, and, and like, <laughs> like good coffee in Tim Hortons. We can do another really, full episode on Tim Hortons. Really genuinely terrible coffee, Matt. Oh, yeah. okay, really okay, genuinely okay, terrible okay. coffee. At one point they were good coffee. <laughs> then they changed hands. They bought, bought, bought out by like Burger King. This isn't important. Particular <laughs> video presented by Tim Hortons. The coffee's real bad. Um, <laughs> it's just hot water at this point. But I, you know, I often said, like, I am not necessarily the most interesting guy, but I'm definitely the most interested guy. Like, I, am, I love it. I am really interested. Like, I love enthusiasm, yeah. for yeah. sure. And I could find that, like, I get, you know, I get crap from my wife all the time. Like, I will find conversation on the subway if you like it or not. And I'm going to, like, you know, talk to you about your watch or, like, yeah. what tote bag is that? Or, um, you know, like, I just, I like that. I like the engagement, and I I think that um, 
you know, you should be careful if I'm at dinner with you and I have nothing to say because that's a dangerous yeah. place. I'm I'm happy to say I've never experienced Didn't that. Have. But do we have time for two more questions or we're we're out of time? I think we gotta wrap. All right, cool, cool. Okay, we're gonna wrap it up. So we gotta we gotta start wrapping things up. So I want to make sure we have time to get to our uh, our Houdinki questionnaire that we do. Ooh, so okay. it's a couple little rapid fire questions. The you can give us uh, you know short ish answers. Okay. Uh, and then we'll uh, we'll make cultural recommendations at the at the end as always. Okay. And um, for the record, I have not had any preview to these questions. No, you have not had preview to these questions. Okay. So I'm gonna ask first up, what's a watch that's caught your eye recently? You know, I really kind of re have been looking at Breitling again. Mm. Okay. Okay, like I was not the John Travolta in an airplane Breitling guy. Tell me more about the era, though. That's one era, but like there's old Breitling, there's like medium 90s Breitling, there's like really flashy Breitling, and then there's now. I think now, now I really like Breitling. What I, catches you? I like the, the, the is it the Navitimer? The new one, the 8? Yeah, the 8. Yeah. In 40, I... I Cool. Brightly, if you're listening, I need that watch. The steel one or the black one? I like the black one. I yeah, think it's I great. Agree. I like it. That's my it, favorite one. It nods to military styling. I love it. I like the case size, everything about it. I agree. Okay. All right. What's the best place you've traveled in the last year? God, I love Italy. I love all things Italy. And I went to Abruzzo this year, and Abruzzo is on the cover of the magazine, and it's in, inside yeah. the magazine. It looks like you're in Wyoming, and you're in like sheep country of. Italy and the food is amazing and it is just a breathtaking place. Awesome. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received and who gave it to you? You know, I'll go back to Horst where, you know, I was trying to navigate this photo career and like, what am I going to do? And, you know, how can I be, you know, successful at what I'm doing? And he was like, just do what you love, baby. And that's for real. He's like, just do what you love. They'll find you. And that's so true. If you really just stick to your guns, and you do what you love that is true to you, it's, un it's unmistakable that you find success in that. Even that, if that success is just happiness, you find success. Perfect. I love that. Uh, and what's your guilty pleasure? Negronis. Mm, there we go. I think that's, that's shared three ways, right, James? Straight whiskey for me. Listen, you get to a certain. You, yeah. <laughs> okay. Wait, listen, you get to a certain age where you got to pick a lane um, with like what you eat and how you eat and all yeah. that stuff. And like if you. I, you know, I'm giving up chocolate cake and sticking to the booze. Oh, I basically order two cocktails. It's like Negroni <laughs> martini. Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah. it's, you have two options, you know? Uh, all right, we'll finish things off here. We always end the show with a cultural recommendation. James, what's, uh, what's your rec? Yeah, so mine's actually, I think I'm happy with this one because I think it's affordable from all ranges and we have someone who has their, or their, their start in photography. It's by a 35 millimeter film camera. Wow. So if you okay. already have the iPhone, I genuinely don't think that unless you're gen like you're super into photography, I don't think you can do better than a modern cell phone right now for yep. just developing your eye. Your photos would be better with a better camera, but your eye won't be any better. But I think you can learn a lot about the mechanics and about the romance of photography from like $100 worth of gear. So buy a Canon, buy a Nikon, buy a Minolta, buy a Pentax, buy literally any brand where the camera's in good running order and it has a 50 millimeter lens that's F1.8 or the number's lower, like say 1.4 or you're not going to get to 1.2 at 100 bucks. Um, and literally like, so a Canon AE1 program is a great option. Uh, 
Minolta X700, a great option. My first camera was a Minolta 7S. Those okay. are pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. I have a 201. A couple hundred bucks, yeah. but pretty cheap. A 201 should be about 100 bucks. And then if you can find it, something like a Rokinon 51.7, super. It literally doesn't matter what lens you put on it. If you don't like uh, 50 mil, like if you're not going to shoot people, then maybe find yourself a 24 or 28 and go nuts with it. A 35 clean as well. Don't fret about stuff like that. Buy a prime lens, so a lens that doesn't zoom, so that you have to move with your feet to get closer to somebody or further back from somebody if you want to take their picture. And then just buy... Um, everybody can weigh in on the film, but I, I think buy Portra 400 and shoot about 30 rolls of Portra 400. It won't cost you nearly... The camera and all the film and the development might cost you about as much as what a good point-and-shoot costs, and you will learn 200x what you would learn from a, a modern point-and-shoot. It's a great recommendation. Yeah. I got to shoot more film. I, I'm not ever shooting film again. You're done. You're out? You're done. done. Dude, we're talking like... I feel like you earned shit. that, though. I, I, yeah, did. I, I exactly. Did. I did. I, I literally started on a Makaiva. And I was I got, and shooting I, two, a three and a half inch floppy. Wow. I mean, I, I actually got rid of so many film cameras, like like a SLR. I kept some key. I kept all my M's and stuff like that. Mm. And then, of course, my daughter, like a year ago, was like, "Where are all the film cameras?" And I had to go out and I bought her a, a Nikon FE. Just send me an email. I'm keeping stock, baby. Oh, I'm getting people into this. I should have done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say I think I got it now. Okay. Are you ready for my cultural? Yeah, my cultural takeaway. I, I would. I think I would like men of a younger generation to spend more time in the kitchen. Yeah, I'm, I'm a terrible, terrible cook. You know, really? and I, that kind of shocks me. I can literally make uh, bone broth. Uh, That's bro. my new we, thing. We, we, we gotta, but by the we way, a, a, by a, a a good broth is difficult lo- to make. I absolutely adore okay, it. Okay, so that think of the endless things you could do with that. Yep. You know, I think that um, first of all, in the magazine, we, we I did this section called Solo Meals which was not giving you any excuse to not make a thoughtful meal for one. If that was a tin of sardines <laughs> or if you had eggs in the yeah, fridge, yeah. like everyone can get eggs in a tin of tuna and, you know, and just and, and make something special out of it. There's a great book. I love Jacques Pepin deeply. He oh. was a big inspiration. I watch, I follow, la, follow la, him on Instagram. La Technique, man. La Technique is la the technique. best. I have that book in four versions, two of them signed by Jacques. My, my wife got me a signed copy years ago. Um, it, that is it's incredible. Buy that book, but you can also start with. There's a book that Jacques Pepin did called. It was a, off, a riff off the PBS series he did. It's called Fast Food My Way, right? They are the best recipes with the least amount of ingredients, with the most bang for your buck, and it really teaches you how to navigate a kitchen in a very clever way without a big investment and without a lot of without needing a lot of skill. And I think, you know. There's n- who doesn't love PS great first date cook the meal that's my tip and um I couldn't do that today if I needed to like <laughs> you I'm can liter- make bone broth <laughs> I mean I'm not you're not cooking that I mean that takes 24 bone, hours bone broth or whatever is pretty impressive though you man. just serve it and you drop yeah. an egg in it you're done you know I suppose, like yeah, yeah. yeah home home ramen yeah yeah I think yeah. I think you you go you go out there and you find a cookbook that that speaks to you whatever that ethnicity or whatever that you know that style of food is, and, you know, learn to cook three solid recipes. You should always have two or three solid recipes that you somebody can turn to you and say, you know, what can you make tonight? So if we were to just real fast, three, what is it? Uh, I, I think grilled sausages in a salad and a great bottle of wine is okay. like my go-to. Like that's my midweek go-to. I think it's amazing. I think learn to make any great 
pasta sauce that could be incorporated with risotto, pasta, gluten-free, whatever is your flavor. But I think a, a great marinara is like you cannot go wrong. Good Parmesan, again, will pair it with a good, another good bottle of wine or something. You cannot go wrong. And I also think learn to make the perfect omelet. Done. You know, one time I was I kind of knew you were going to go there before you did. Eggs. Well, eggs. It's a great thing. Eggs are amazing. Amazing. One time I was on the road and my wife was like, there's no food in this house. And I was like, okay, open the refrigerator. What's in there? I said, first of all, is there a bottle of rosé? It was the summer. She's like, yeah, there's a bottle of rosé. I was like, good, check. Open that. <laughs> Two, are there eggs? Yeah, there are eggs. Okay. Is there any cheese, like an old rind of anything? Yeah, there's a, some Parmesan. Okay, pull that out. We, I know we have a garden in Brooklyn. I know there's always like some thyme or rosemary or some sage or some herbaceous thing in the back, right? I was like, are there eggs? Yeah. I was like, okay, here it is. You're going to go pull whatever herbs you want. You're going to make the best looking omelet that you possibly could make. And that could be scrambled eggs. And you're going to open that bottle of rosé. And that's going to be the best meal of your life. And it was, you know, and I think part of that is like you accomplish it. And part of it is like you're kind of pickled with a good rosé and it can only taste good after that. That works for me. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen, what about you? So my cultural recommendation is going to be something way less self-improving than what either of you guys have uh, suggested. Uh, I am deep, deep, deep into season three of True Detective Don't talk right to now. me about it. I'm going to leave. Uh, Why? Are you, wow. are you starting not? tonight? Oh, you're starting tonight? I'm literally starting oh, tonight. Guys. All okay, I've you've done lost is me. I, I, I've missed. So, so oh, season, one of True, season one of True Detective is possibly the best season of television I've ever seen in my not life. Not possibly. Wow. Okay. It, it is the season best. One More of than Detective. Friends? I was hedging. Season yeah. one is... Season one of it's, True Detective is the finest piece of television ever made. I, I And in, in narrative arc storytelling... It it should be a course. I would say I would say in terms of storytelling, it's as good. And this is, this is from me a big big compliment. It's as good as The Great Gatsby. Like it wow. is, it is narratively unbelievable. It's acted incredibly. Season two is the biggest dumpster fire oh. I've ever seen in my life. Like I am a worse human being. Can I offer for having spent? eight hours of my life watching that season of television. Can I offer a different take? Yeah. First season is absolute avant-garde, philosophical, metaphysical storytelling wow. yeah. in a rooted true crime not uh, genre that's borderlines on noir. Okay. The second season is a very good true crime drama. I think season two is garbage, but that's okay. By the way, you uh, both have lost that's, me. That's fine. So see, season one's amazing. Season two was garbage. Season three took years and years and years, finally came out. Not only is it, I, I would say it's not quite as good as season one. Good it's luck. very good. It's also connected to season one. Mm-hmm. So we're getting a, a, a oh, sort of like, we're, we're getting a very different, yeah, sorry, I won't blow up too much here, but it is connected to season one. Better in lead some way. actor than season one. Better by lead a, actor, Marshall Ali is unreal. The he guy plays, is just one of the most talented people in the entire game right now. He plays himself as a 35-year-old, a 45-year-old, and like a 60-something-year-old. Uh, I can't handle it's, this. I it's incredible. I guess, uh, I, I guess I know what I'm doing this weekend. So it's, binge it's great. It's when I'll, we're recording I'll put it on this. on USB. I keep it on my laptop. When, really? when we're recording this, it's five epi- episodes in, six will air this weekend. Uh, and in addition to watching the show, this will have already dropped on a, a uh, weekend roundup on, on Hodinkee. Uh, but you got to go to The Ringer and watch. They have a, a like video after show called The Flat Circle mm. um, that is uh, 
it's the best like kind of like recap after show you could possibly have for the season. Uh, they they really go through like all the like weird conspiracy theories that are floating around the internet of like what's going on. They walk you through the episode, all the little Easter eggs that you don't pick up on when you're watching it in real time. They find all the references to like, there's a whole lot of like Lovecraft stuff going on. Pre-horror, yeah. Yeah, like early, like late 19th, early 20th century stuff. It's great. It's just like, it, it is wow. so satisfying. Yeah. Uh, it's the only show I can watch nowadays, and this is probably an indictment of, of my own media habits, but uh, it's the only show where like I put my phone on silent and I looked at my television for fifty something minutes. Like, oh yeah, no, a no. television, not yeah. a computer. I'm like, I'm like, on, I, I'm like, I give my wife yeah. a hard time. Like, if we're watching yeah. it and she Don't like talk. picks up her phone, I'm like, put your phone down. Yeah, Stop yeah. it. Like, we have to focus. You're gonna miss something, and then we won't be able to talk about it, and yeah. I'm gonna be really annoyed. Like, you have to watch it. It's so good. So on the on the very off chance, and I know we're short on time, but on the very off chance that somebody <laughs> hasn't seen season one, watch season one, and then just. Do me a favor. If you enjoyed it, Google The King in Yellow and Sarcosa. All right. Uh, Google will correct your spelling of Sarcosa, so don't worry about Carcosa. it. Carcosa. Carcosa. Thank you. Carcosa. Carcosa. The King in Yellow and Carcosa. And specifically, the short story you're looking for is called A Visitor to Carcosa. Yeah. It will... This is going to mess with your brain. Yeah. All right. That's all. That's as far as I'm this going. This episode was like super fun and then got real weird yeah, at yeah. the end. The, so, the, uh, the level to which... did it produce? Who produced it? Uh, so it's, it's it's Nick Pizzolatto. It's is, HBO. It's on HBO, HBO, but Nick Nick Pizzolatto is the sort of okay. creator, and then um, it's, it's Matthew McConaughey's absolute finest work as yeah. as an actor. No, I mean, no I question. think I watched the first couple. I got to get yeah. back into check, it. Check it out. Also, I want to say, like, I'm not sure how how sensitive these mics are, but the my combination of the, my jeans and this chair may have sounded like I was farting through the entire interview. Uh, for the record, I wasn't. Okay. I think you're good. That's, that's, your, good. that's your opinion. Yeah. Okay, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can apply a filter. And, yeah. and on that note, follow yeah. me at, at WM Brown Project on Instagram. Link it up in the show notes. That's great. Yeah. Hit the show notes. Awesome. For all of it. Cool. Dude, it was so good to see you. Thank um, you. What a since pleasure. Since we're not neighbors anymore, I don't get to see you nearly as often, but... Uh, it was good to chat, and uh, thanks for joining us, James. And well, I'm, I'm sure you're going to be a recurring guest. I can't imagine this is your yeah, last appearance. I would uh, be constantly available. Perfect. Love <laughs> it. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, man. This week's episode was recorded at Mirror Tone Studios in New York City and was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference for us. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.